Okay, this time around we're going to be talking about Altered States, which is a 1980 film directed by Ken Russell and written by Paddy Chevsky. I think probably the most succinct uh, synopsis for it, although we are going to go into massive spoilers beyond this later on, is um, from Mubi. In search of the ultimate truth, a determined psychiatrist, William Hurt, takes hallucinatory drugs and undergoes sensory deprivation. But when he starts experiencing physiological changes, his wife, Blair Brown, and colleagues, Bob Balaban and Charles Hayde, begin to fear for his safety. Shane, how did you first come across this film? Well, it's one of those movies that had been on my hit list for years, having seen it in the video shop. You know, that kind of weird poster image of William Hurt. Upside down William Hurt. With, like cathodes or whatever it is on his uh, on his head and it just was so strange and freaky that I wanted to see it but I was too scared to watch it as a kid and then I maybe picked it up like 10 years ago when I was in a pretty sad state and smoking loads of weed and just sat down to watch it on a, on my laptop and was actually like really blown away you know I was I was pretty stoned as well so I think maybe I was really receptive to some of the uh you know some of the imagery in it but yeah yeah really it's yeah i've seen it a couple of times since and you know it's it's a really interesting and really well executed piece of work i I really like it i kind of grew up with it i don't know did you see any any coverage of it when it came out no nothing nothing it's literally that kind of clamshell VHS. Yeah, big black ha- Warner, haunting. Warner Brothers clamshell. Yeah, haunting the video show. I, I remember it coming out because I was um, a sci-fi movie whore um, in the late 70s, early 80s. Everything that came along I was kind of interested in. And there's... there's the era for it, Yeah. It? There was lots of coverage in science fiction magazines and there were loads of... Um, I know people complain about spoilers these days, but back in those days like film companies were releasing images of all the spoiler section everything from every film everything from american wolf in london everything from altered states like the stuff that i saw from altered states in an issue of starlog was what kind of like piqued Mm -hmm. my curiosity because they had all the kind of distorted bodily shapes all yeah all the special effect shots and everything in it so i was kind of interested in it then but obviously i was only nine ten years old So I got to see it a few years later. It must have been 82 or 83. Uh, we didn't have a VCR, so we had to rent it from the video shop and watch it on my, my friend's VCR. And it it didn't disappoint. I was yeah. really blown right. away by it. And then kind of in later years, had like an ex-rental copy of it on tape and got it on DVD when that came out, which was probably my most revelatory viewing of it in, in widescreen for the first time in, in really decent sound and everything. And I've seen it theatrically once but it was terrible the nft had a science fiction season at the end of 2014 and they were showing this Mm -hmm. so you know my wife and i went along and i was very very excited to see it on a big screen Um, but then at the beginning of the screening they said oh it's a very old print and unfortunately it's a bit faded so it was it was falling apart and it was basically just pink all the way through and you know at least half of this film is the incredibly varied and colorful visuals Yeah, yeah so that was a waste of time and the Blu-ray as well is quite disappointing because they've gone for a contemporary grade on it and they've um, colour-timed a lot of the saturation out of it. So if anyone was going to be watching it on Blu-ray, I'd suggest you just turn up the colour on your TV by about 25% to get it back to something like it should look. Uh, yeah, so I've kind of grown up with it. Um, and But oddly enough, when I was doing my drug experimentation years in my early 20s, it didn't. I didn't involve it in that at all. Oh, yeah. It's never been... A druggy movie for me. I just think it really stands up, and I think 
you know, there's all these stories about the sort of muddled history of the production and it's switching studios and losing Arthur Penn and, you know, Ken Russell and Chayefsky fighting on set. They call it a clash of two monstrous egos having both of them on set at the same time. But I, I don't feel any of that in the film, actually. I, I feel like it's kind of... It's really strange, isn't it? Mm. It's It feels like a whole piece. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel like a... a, a a muddied mishmash yeah, of all sorts no, of things. It's not fragmented at all. You no. know, maybe a little abrupt at the ending, but you know, yeah. apart from that, I find it really convincing. We should talk about that now because half, you know, half of the film's reputation when it came out was was how difficult a production yeah. it had, and there's things about it that I only only found out this morning. I didn't realize it was Paddy Chevsky's last film. Oh, was it? Yeah, because this is only novel as well, isn't it? Yeah, well, this is the thing. It's his novel that he started writing immediately after the success of Network. Yeah. And he was apparently extremely stressed during the writing of it and had a heart attack. Oh, my God. Um, so, you know... Stressed? I, I don't know. Because when you watch the film and you listen to the dialogue and some of the, uh, you know, pseudo-scientific exploration they're talking about, it just sounds like cocaine, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> sounds like the cocaine talking. Because a, a lot of the um, parapsychology and, you know, the science is pretty redundant these days we've sort of left that stuff behind haven't yeah we? So, pseudoscience yeah. pseudo yeah well a lot of that stuff would have come you know john c Lilly, who was um a psychologist he was he's he's the guy whose research uh, a yeah, lot of the, the old states on. of perception that's his phrase um and it was a lot of his research into obviously you know psychedelic drug use and isolation tanks and and where that leads that fed into the novel but yeah, and Chesky was was very stressed, had a heart attack during the writing of it, and I think knowing that that was probably the the novel was kind of his inquiry into mortality and mm-hmm. and life after death and yeah. and you know it's his existential moment. Isn't yeah, it? it's his very existential moment, which kind of explains why he's so tied to the novel and tied to the project. Because when the film was made, um, he, he was effectively the source of a lot of conflict on the production mm. um with everyone there, through all the development wasn't it yeah the development was quite interesting because columbia actually paid all the key participants including the production designer the then effect supervisor dick smith the makeup mm. effect supervisor director and writer they actually paid for them for the development yeah, they'd all sit down aren't they? days and days and weeks and months of <laughs> sketching and uh, talking yeah and but never really reaching any conclusion on how they're going to do a lot of stuff and mm. dick smith in that fabulous article in in um cinefax uh seemed to sort of take take command and say right well we have to do something so i'm going to build these suits yeah, yeah. and this we'll is work how around we do that. it practically yeah know. um but chevsky seemed to be the guy who was i mean again it's something i read about him this morning he was a very antagonistic person he just loved to argue and would often change sides just because he enjoyed oh, okay. the heat of the of the fight and there was a report in the cinefax you know i think it was one of the one of the effects guys was you know would you get into a conversation with him and and chevsky would say no that isn't what i want and somebody would say to him well what what do you want and he'd say well don't ask me i'm just the writer <laughs> So I can imagine that would be quite maddening. Yeah. Um, pre-production got too expensive. Columbia dropped the project. It went to Warner's. Arthur Penn dropped out after a disagreement with Chevsky. Mm-hmm. Production moved ahead. Ken Russell came on board. I mean, um, he come, came on board, you know, three months before they started shooting. So they've had, like, I don't know, a year or two years in development. Yeah. And then they just grabbed Ken Russell at the last minute. And to be fair, he comes in and puts his stamp on it. You can feel it's a Ken Russell film. Yeah, absolutely. And here's the thing. In, in that 
Cinefex article, it's kind of very dismissive of everything that Ken Russell did, as if he kind of just salvaged it from all the parts that everyone left lying around. Sure. But he did order all the sets torn down to start from scratch mm. so that he could do it his way. Yeah. And to be honest, it is a Ken Russell film, and a lot of the ideas that he brought to it to actually solve story problems that two years of development had not got anywhere near, solve the story problems yeah, and it. really make it work. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the film, um, the lead character, Jessup, is dissolving away into nothing, mm. um, and he infects his wife with the same dissolution, and she starts to kind of dissolve as yeah, well. She breaks down to that fabulous lava body Lava suit. suit. But they spent ages in development saying, how are we going to, how are we going mm -hmm. to express the fact that he's passed this on to her? We can't make it too obvious. We can't make it too obscure. And Ken Russell just solves that by saying, well, we'll just have a shot of his hand touching hers. Yeah, yeah. And then she starts to transform. And it's just the simple things like that mm. that actually solved a lot I, of the I problems. I think he was the one that had set up in, in the second act. She reaches into the, the void, into the abyss as well, doesn't she? Which is like sowing the seeds in her DNA for that breakdown as well. Mm. So it's kind of, it's set up and then paid off. And of course, yeah, I didn't mention, Chevsky left the project um, as well, soon Ken as... Ken Russell ordered him off set, <laughs> didn't he, in the end? He was just like, he's too disruptive. Yeah, but he absolutely was disruptive. You know, there's a story of one of the production designers says, you know, Chevsky would wander on set and order them to start tearing down sets because they weren't yeah, yeah. what he imagined. Yeah, he had them remove windows from yeah. uh, townhouse sets and all sorts, didn't he? So Chevsky left, took his name off the project, um, just used a pseudonym. A pseudonym, isn't it his middle name or something? His, his, his middle name and his actual first name, Sidney Aaron. That's it, Sidney Aaron. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, um, died a year later of cancer. Did he? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I just thought he was still going. So you, I can kind of see his motivation for hanging on to this project, yeah, which yeah. is his statement about life and death, oh. when he clearly knew that he was near yeah, the end. Yeah, so you think he was diagnosed? I think so, yeah. So that's why mortality is in the forefront of everything that he's doing and experimentation. And... Yeah. Wow. Um, so you can see, you know, he was very disruptive, but you can also see why he, he wanted absolute control of this project. Sure. So do you know much about Paddy Chayefsky? I know him from Network, but not much else. I know his, his um, background from TV. You know, he wrote Marty, which was oh, one of the... Oh, okay. Grand Borgnin. Yeah. Yeah, okay. He wrote the TV version and the film adaptation. Uh -huh. um, you know, it was one of those kind of heavyweight TV writers that moved into film. Yeah. I think kind of his peak years were throughout the 60s and, and 70s, obviously. Uh -huh. And then massive success of Network. Um, but that was, you know network and then this movie were effectively the end of his career oh. well the end of his life the end of his yeah. life yeah again you know we, uh, this is legitimately a ken russell movie it's mm. interesting oh, no doubt. to think yeah there's stuff in uh, this in effects article where they talk about him being able to compress all of those themes into you know where in the script and in the development process up to that point they'd had sequences that would be 50 shots trying to yeah, taking grasp a, the a religious, yeah, laboriously sexual, taken straight, yeah, yeah, straight exactly. from the novel, and he was able to just compress those into a single or images or a, a shortened sequence that mm. you know was kind of visually breathtaking, really immediate. And I think he was pushing for you know frame cutting and making it more kind of dynamic visually and yeah. trying to impress on the subconscious. I think he had uh, the, the first time I've noticed watching it this time round. Uh, I noticed Stuart Baird's name in the credits. Oh yeah, okay. 
as an executive producer. Mm-hmm. And you know Stuart Baird is He's the an absolute editor, isn't genius editor yeah. who was the fix-it man for um, Warner Brothers throughout the late, oh, okay. throughout the 90s. And he'd worked with Ken Russell on a couple of movies in the 70s. Oh, really? And he'd, by that point, he'd cut The Omen and Superman. Yeah. Um, and Superman was quite a fraught production, and he kind of brought that together breathtakingly. Mm-hmm. I think he was kind of Ken Russell's right-hand man, creative oh, okay. consultant on that, because he's, he's got that talent for, for pulling together the best of a very, very difficult production mm-hmm. and getting the best out of it. I think there's a bit of Stuart Baird's DNA in the movie. Oh, yeah, okay. At but first glance, it feels like a, a strange film for Ken Russell, you know, an American science fiction film after he's coming off Valentino and is it Listomania? Yeah, and Tommy a few years yeah, before. Yeah, exactly. He was kind of doing big showy musicals. Mm. And then his subsequent work is all kind of a little bit more exploitative. Yeah, ex- exploitation and horror, isn't yeah. it? A lot throughout, throughout so the it 80s. seems like an odd choice, but then on second pass, you, you kind of see the stuff about faith and belief in your your choices William Hurt's character like pushing hard to dig into this uh, religious experience of regressing into a primitive state it is actually perfect Ken Russell material and you kind of wish he'd done more films with this sort of budget and freedom I think this is almost the pinnacle really isn't it yeah yeah I think so and I think it feels like he was quite loose with his thinking around the visual effects to go from what they had and to just acknowledge it's not good enough and to find find someone you know, some groundbreaking techniques to yeah. really twist the visuals into something you know actually quite spectacular and really really special so do you know have you found anything about what ken russell thought or felt about the film um i'm sure there's a lot of stuff out there um because ken russell has quite a big cult following and I'm sure there's a lot of writing about it but the only thing that I've found is frustratingly there's an article from the week it was released in America is um, reproduced on the New York Times archive mm-hmm. but unfortunately a few paragraphs in it just um, it's it's mistranscribed and it, it switches over to an article about Rachel Ticketin the actress mm-hmm. but from what he says in that article um, he was and it's clear from watching the film and reading the book you've read the book as well yeah, yeah. yeah. From reading the book, it is a very, very um, faithful adaptation of the book. Yeah, they say that, don't they? You know, his. I think there's a point in that Cinefix article, maybe, where they're talking about how loyal they were to Chayefsky's dialogue and making sure that the characters spoke as he wanted them to. Yeah. But they moved some of the scenes to sort of crowded rooms and got them all talking simultaneously just to try and compress it. Because mm. ultimately, you don't need to know all of the cod science to to get it you just need to feel that their belief and faith in what they're doing and their energy and enthusiasm yeah, and for it the sense that they're they're brilliant and knowledgeable enough that what they're saying is probably dynamic young minds yeah. pushing the boundaries of uh, science and human experience russell says that even if he'd wanted to there wasn't really any way that he could actually change a word of the script because chevsky would have sued him Oh, yeah, okay. um, he was that possessive about it. He he seems thoroughly gentlemanly about it, and saying, you know, I you know I did I did a good job. I adapted it very very faithfully, organised the visual elements so that they work, mm-hmm. which is which is absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. So how how does the movie affect you? Um, because uh, it's a very powerful film. I think it's a really inspiring film. It's you know it's really well crafted. Uh, I really like the performances. I, I you know I love how much they believe in what they're doing. 
I think the science feels a bit dated now. We've kind of left a lot of those ideas <laughs> far behind this idea that we can reach back into some uh, memory buried in our DNA over centuries and millennia. You know, I think that's... Yeah, it's kind of... It's a bit silly. <laughs> <laughs> it's the so, in inverted commas science of the time. Yeah, it? that's it. You know, if you know anybody now that's kind of like still a drug addict, that's the kind of nonsense they talk about. <laughs> I really love the effects work in it. It has so many little indulgences which I think it's hard for modern films to get away with. I love all the stuff with the uh, primordial man <laughs> running around the city, all that stuff that's shot on a back lot. You know, five or ten minutes of little ape man running around being chased by dogs and then going to the zoo. Mm. And I just love those interludes. I feel like it's really, really brave to do those kind of things. I love it that it just has like a time jump between the first and second act of like seven, seven or years, eight. Yeah. Seven, and yeah. If you're not listening carefully to the dialogue, it's yeah, like... Yeah. Yeah, you. Yeah, it's easy to miss. It's easy to miss, and I, I think it's kind of, I don't know, it's very respectful of the audience. It's never patronising. Mm. It says that the characters accept this reality. So, that's yeah. a that's a really important point for yeah. me. Is that it doesn't it doesn't piss about in the way that so many films do. Say, is it real? Yeah, Isn't yeah. it real? Is this really happening, or is yeah, it hallucination? Yeah. It has hallucinatory scenes early on. Yeah. And then it very, very clearly accepts that this is physically happening, and so do the yeah, characters. Yeah. yeah, that there is. I don't know. Do you ever see that movie Somewhere in Time, where Christopher Reeve yes. magics himself back in time, and it has that sort of absolutism to its, yeah. its core? You know, like this can happen. We believe in this. Well, that that for me is what is what makes a supernatural or a fantastic film genuinely inspiring or worth watching. I have no time for those films. And it's such a cliche. Those films that kind of want their cake and eat it, you mm. know, it's kind of like, oh, well, we're going to show you these fantastic things, but we have to, for the sake of balance, inspire doubt. Yeah, is yeah. this really happening? Mm. Is this if is this idea too crazy? You have to take a crazy idea and go with it. Mm -hmm. That's what fantasy fiction and film is. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't go with it, then I'm not going with your movie. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you feel like when people are sitting on the fence and worried about looking silly, mm. they definitely come back from the abyss don't they whereas yeah. this film leaps in you know you have at one point William Hurt like reduced to a primordial blob and at some point he's completely atomized you know it's yeah and it's all just part of this experimental process that he's gone through it's like his the combination of the isolation chamber and the uh, psychotropic drugs mm. is enough to somehow unlock <laughs> his DNA so that he can reconstitute into some ancient previous, ancestral previous ancient, ancient form yeah, of his yeah. own energy uh, no it's 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 fascinating stuff yeah. you know and what I liked about it was its conviction to its ideas and then you you had your I have something to say <laughs> you have something to say <laughs> I, f I find it I agree with every single word that you've said I find it brilliant on a technical level mm. really engrossing um, because especially because they were still winging it at the end you know to some of those visual effects they made up after the film was cut and mm. finished and they, they were just unhappy with it wasn't quite big yeah. enough at the end was it yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with all of that I just pers on a personal level I find it a genuinely frightening film mm -hmm. I find it unsettling um, I find the central concept the fact that by some combination of means you can up unlock the fabric of reality yeah i find that quite disturbing anything that can unlock the fabric of un of reality is obviously <laughs> yeah. quite disturbing to yeah, me sure. but i do find it really unsettling the fact mm. that that 
that that happens to the lead character. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually relatively simple. It's a simple cocktail, isn't it? Mm. Like an exotic drug, an isolation chamber, and mm. that's it, you know. It's the idea that a couple of random or semi-random things brought together can bring it can bring it about. Oh, okay, there's a chance it might happen accidentally. Yeah, so I, I find anything like that really frightening. And there's some things in it which I want to highlight. Again, this is, this is Ken Russell, absolutely, because it's not things that are in the script and it's not, you know, special effects images. There's a couple of images and moments in it which I find extremely frightening mm -hmm. and extremely vivid and powerful. Uh, there's an early scene where um, Jessup, the lead character, has just met Emily, his wife-to-be, yeah. and they go back to her apartment and they're having sex. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is like really early on as well, yeah. isn't it? I mean, and, it kicks into gear straight away. You don't see his hallucinations or his, the things that he's seeing whilst they're having sex, but he's having internal visions. Mm. Um, and then you cut to an electric fire, just an orange electric fire yeah, yeah, yeah. in close up and with the with the soundtrack underneath, which we'll talk about later, um, I just find that an extremely disturbing image. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, everyday life made to seem extremely unsettling just because of yeah, the moment. Yeah, but his performance, I mean, again, something, it's his first movie and he is electric in it. Yeah. You know, he's able to sort of have that slightly autistic, uh, academic distance from everybody around him but also having this like deep spiritual mm. journey simultaneously it's a really complicated performance that he he pulls off you know yeah. there's no exaggeration he's always there that yeah. scene where he's having sex you just see like in his eyes like he's gone you mm. know his body's in one place and his mind is completely elsewhere his wife describes sex with him as being harpooned by a monk receiving god <laughs> which i thought was a really nice line it's it's images like the electric fire. There's um, a couple of, I mean, the the symbolism's very obvious on them. The scenes framing him in doorways. Mm. There's the scene where Emily sees him for the first time yeah, at, at the end the party. of, and I I checked out the um, geography of the corridor that he's mm. at the end of, and Emily in relation to it, and it's massively exaggerated in the shot. Yeah, of course. Where the door opens and he's kind of haloed in this white yeah, light yeah, from yeah. outside. Um, he just looks like this messianic figure yeah, in the that's distance. Mm. That's an amazing image. Um, and the scene kind of with the schizophrenic. Who is yeah, yeah. Really strange scene. Yeah, so that's the scene where... Because his work is uh, exploring the minds of schizophrenics and their sort of parallel religious experiences. And he himself had a semi-religious experience as a child, which is, I think, where his fascination comes from. But that scene, there's a schizophrenic being poked and prodded and analysed by a team of doctors behind one-way glass. Tested with psychotropic drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just sat on the other side of it having quite a sort of mundane... Domestic Yeah, with... Uh, chat with his wife-to-be. Yeah, and she's talking about them getting married and, you know, how what a, a benefit it would be to their stability and things. And in the meantime, you see, just see this girl on the monitor and then behind the glass just kind of rolling her eyes and mm. you know starting to really phase out it's slightly possessed look isn't it but yeah but yeah. none of the sort of big physical uh gestures that you'd expect from a movie like this you know mm. it's it's very contained you know and very interior i suppose mm. and she has that line i you know when she's been injected and it's i think the drug calms her mm. I feel like my heart has been touched by Christ. Yeah, it's just a really unsettling moment, which is not, you know, it's not a, a, a major part of the film, but it just kind of sets the mood. Mm -mm. 
I really like the opening sequence where we're looking into the isolation chamber window and then we sort of pull back from there to Bob Balaban in the lab. Yeah. I really like that. There's a thing, are you going to say the same thing about in the Cinefix where I think that was Ken Russell's idea, wasn't it, to put a window out <laughs> so we could see inside. It's, it's only when you think about it afterwards and this is... An isolation chamber with a window. With a window. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, it's a measure of how the film sells itself to you. It's just, mm. it's such a powerful opening that you don't really consider that, do you? It's a lovely picture, yeah. 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 And then I really like that title sequence with the letters just scrolling left to right and right to left and then... Overlaying and then yeah. moving themselves, yeah. It's really nice. Yeah, it's a title sequence by um, Robert Greenberg. It's R. Greenberg Associates anyway. I think it was only there second or third title sequence it's really nice they came from an advertising background and ridley scott um got them in as visual consultants on alien and they did the credit sequence for that oh really it's very similar isn't it and also um superman the movie i think that was their first credit sequence oh wow okay which was to this day it's one of the best credit sequences ever what i really liked was that how quickly it gets into the film and gets into the meat of what it's about and how dynamic it is with establishing the characters and then like just pushing forwards mm. you know it's, it's really concise isn't it doesn't waste any time at all a really interesting lesson in storytelling and setting up your visual schematics as well you know it's it opens with isolation tank mm. in a sub sort of in a kind of basement set yeah yeah um you set up the lighting schemes that you're going to have for later in the film Mm-mm. all that sort of thing whilst you're introducing the lead character's obsessions but there's something about the joy that they have as well about doing the work so you know it is kind of dark and scary and you know abstract concepts but there's just an absolute pleasure that they're having mm. in the exploration as well which i think yeah, is, is really tangible something they're doing in their free time just for, yeah, just yeah. for interest sake isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah well taking drugs and <laughs> experimenting with isolation well the drugs don't come into it until mm. i mean to be fair there's no drugs in it until um till mexico till mexico yeah that's it's true. purely isolation tank and so that happens seven years later right so he still has this memory of being in the isolation chamber and what it was unlocking yeah because the the first time that he uses the tank um he talks about hallucinating but we never see it we never go into those kind of interior visions and then we're about 13 minutes into the film when he has his second dip into the isolation chamber and that's when he has his first visions that's when his friend arthur is asleep for the controls and it's not that he has his first hallucinations it's just it's the first time that we see them first time yeah we as the audience and uh, they see inside of his mind yeah that's, yeah, that's good and we see his kind of startling religious imagery that first set of hallucinations is is pretty dense you get the seven-eyed goat figure on a crucifix you get those Dali-esque landscapes, you get sex, violence, sacrifice, Catholicism. It's all kind of there in like that first, and really just thunders past, and then you're kind mm. of out again. There's that seven-eyed, goat-headed man on a crucifix, which is it's a really powerful image, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite a lot of work apparently went into making that. You know, they they were trying very hard to make sure the eyes, all, all seven, seven eyes, eyes looked yeah. as if they were staring right at you. Yeah, yeah, it works. I mean, it's really mm. haunting. 
But even within these sort of hallucination images that that aren't tied into the sort of central regression, they're, they're not as a result of... There's still a lot of... Um, it's, it's got to unlock his subconscious before he can regress. Right? Yeah, but there's still a lot of, of imagery in there about unlocking um, forbidden truths. There's the, mm. there's the shot of the what looks like a huge religious book, if it's a Bible or a... Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And as, as you open that, you get a sudden explosion of... You know, you, you feel that this is this is forbidden knowledge that he's yeah. reaching into here. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much the film kind of plays him as a messianic figure who is always destined to do what he does, or if that's just kind of part of his religious imagery. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what if he'd have been raised an atheist, would he have been able to still journey as far? Exactly, yeah. You know, almost having a big symbol in your mind from childhood gives you something to push back against yeah one one scene which i really liked which isn't really to do with the science but it was just a nice way of filling in after the sort of seven year time jump you have bob balaban's character and his wife turn up and she's pregnant and they're just sort of moving between the the rooms of this house gossiping Mm. and it was just a really nice way of you know you see the family one way and then the the wife's been gossiping and actually the family is something else and they're going to have some time apart the wife's going to go and do some research work in Africa and Jessup's going to stay there on his own and she's going to take the children and Paul Balaban's completely oblivious and he's just like what's what's happening just thought that was a really nice way of getting the information across and you sort of you know the gossiping wife you know there's definitely a, a glee to her <laughs> yeah, it's, it's gossip, isn't it? Yeah, 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 and she's really enjoying it, and you sort of you're drawn quite quickly into that. You don't just think, oh, exposition mm. disguised as dialogue. Yeah, there's lots of those little clever details. Yeah, after seven years, they've settled down, and they're both pursuing their very kind of successful, um, successful academic careers. Mm. Quite wealthy as well, I would imagine. Somebody, yeah. somebody hints yeah, at in one line of dialogue. Well, they've got a nice house. They've moved to San Francisco, and they've got a lovely house mm. in San Francisco, and. Yeah, they seem to be doing all right for themselves in the upper leagues of academia. A friend of his says, you know, you've got everything. He's like, no, I've got nothing. You know, mm. all of this, all of these trappings. Yeah, you have um, one of the most brilliant women in the world who adores you. If mm. anyone has it made, it's you. Yeah. And his response, which I made a note of, is, is Jessup has absolutely, he's still obsessed with getting back to his quest, mm. which he doesn't quite know what it is, but he knows that, that day-to-day life is holding him back. And yeah. He says, if I, if I don't strip myself of all this clatter and clutter and ridiculous ritual I shall go out of my fucking mind which is kind of your lead character right there yeah and within the same scene as well you kind of get the the first hook of the South American experience where that's it com- combining isolation chambers with with psychotropic psychotropic drugs exactly. and introducing the character of Eduardo who's a colleague of theirs at the faculty yeah, um, yeah. who they go to dinner with that evening really nice scene again isn't it yeah you know really bustling cafe they're all in different stages of inebriation and it's a it's a, a it's lovely really spiky isn't yeah, it yeah I, I it's it's one of those things because i saw it so young um i still see that like restaurant stroke bodega stroke mm-hmm. shop and think i really want to eat somewhere like that yeah, and yeah, i've never right. found one found anywhere like that in I life i wish i had friends that i could <laughs> go to a cafe with and yes it's a fantastic scene which again could be you know an absolute rattle trap of exposition but everyone is drunk and racing through their their different ideas yeah, yeah, yeah. and their responses to to jessup's and you can see that the booze has made jessup quite loose as well you mm. know where he normally he's quite uptight so yeah it's a nice sort of drunk scene as well 
and it, it carefully, carefully kind of introduces a tone of menace and an uncertainty about where Jessup's obsessions are going to lead, yeah, just yeah. just by pushing in closer and watching em- Emily's reactions mm. to him as he gets. That's it, because I think it's quite good at keeping Emily safe from him and saying that she's an intellectual in her own right and yeah. her idea ideas and research are as valid as his. She's just not showy, you know. And ultimately, that threads back in mm. when she returns from Africa and her work is paralleled with his and then you know she's able to save him about Emily as there's another review I was reading this morning is his volume two of cult movies oh yeah those two books cult movies were were written before just before the advent of um home video oh okay so cult movies in those days meant movies that people would go and see in the cinema over and over again yeah track down and at the end of volume one he mentions altered states as one of the movies that that was growing in prominence at the time of writing Mm -hmm. and then he does it in volume two but one of the things he says about Emily is um, he points out how um, her characterization is strengthened compared to the novel. Oh, OK. Novel has a section where she tries to live without him early in their relationship and then goes back to him because she's obsessed by him. So the movie excises that. And it also kind of strengthens her career, as you say. Yeah, it yeah. gives her you know, an independent career. She's brilliant in her own right. Mm. And she's a mother as well. She's raising the kids mm. as well as doing all of her work. You yeah. know, it's, you know, she's doing two jobs, basically, where he's just kind of indulging himself with a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> and again, immediately after the scientific discussion in the bodega, um, we are straight away cut to Mexico. Nice introduction scene where you sort of pan across the landscape and you know that you're, you've gone from San Francisco to somewhere quite different. And as the pan finishes, their hands appear and they're climbing up the rocks mm. into shot. I think that's just a really economic way of doing everything in, in one shot. It's mm. really nice. So he's here to try this, um, the Hinchy Indians ancient psychedelic potion which evokes a common experience in everyone who takes it, which is, you know, very unusual, obviously. Um, And he wants to know, he wants to feel that kind of primal experience because he thinks it's something akin to what he's chasing. He's nervous as well, isn't he? Like, for the first time we see him asking, like, really, what am I going to see? What can I expect? You know, like, he's really nervous, but trying to be academic about it at the same time. (laughs) So it's quite, quite a lot to unpack in this scene, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the the ritual itself. Um, there's the beautiful images of tribes people picking mushrooms from the side of the mountain as they come hop skipping down the rocks past them to catch up with the shaman. Mm. There's the images from the hallucination itself. You have to you have to look quite hard into the scripts to find like I wouldn't call it a MacGuffin, but there is a magic potion in there. There yeah, is yeah. like the one fantastic element in it is the um, hallucinogen that the Indians use mm. which evokes a common experience and that's that's the fantastic element that's hidden so carefully in the plot yeah. that you you just kind of accept it on at face value yeah, you're yeah. not asked to make but a it's, massive it's not, leap it's not a complete fabrication either you know there are tribes that you know across South America and Africa that are still ingesting you know unknown roots of unknown you know genetic composition and mm having visions and vision quests you know it, it's that you know you see bruce parry in the amazon off his nuts you know mm. do, and so i think it's not a big leap to accept that sure but it's it's the idea that it's 
that it evokes this common experience in everyone who takes mm. it. That's that's the yeah, Doctor Jekyll that, thing. Yeah, and the combination of his own experiments with the isolation chamber is the extra catalyst. Mm. I think. I love that scene with the Indians. Actually, I think that's that's a really nice sequence. There's that brilliant bit where they're talking to the Indian, and he uh, he just turns and walks away. And then when they go to catch him up, he's like a hundred meters away. So they have to run all the way down the hill <laughs> to catch him. And I I think they were saying something like. You know, there's the belief that the shaman are light of foot. You know, when you see crouching tiger or something, and those people are able to just skip across the trees. You know, Mm. I think there was a little hint of that, but there's no way to show it without it looking ridiculous. But then they just have to sprint down to catch him up. But that's a really nice detail. I like I like that scene as well. It's a nice sort of subtle horror movie undertow of of menace in the scene. There's Mm. just little things like. Is it Eduardo, the um, yeah. South American character yeah. who they introduce, who always looks slightly removed from the action and as 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 if he's not quite to be trusted? Um, he's always kind of at a remove, and he's always not quite involved in the action. And but I think his character is supposed to represent this, um, you know, the gatekeeper. You know, he's the man that walks between two cultures. You yeah. know, the sophisticated scientists of the West and the primitive shaman of the. South, would you South, say? Yeah. South America, yeah. yeah. South America. So I think, you know, he has a foot in both worlds. Mm. He's the gatekeeper, isn't he? He can get them access to the, the good stuff. And there's the actual, I mean, I wouldn't call it hokey because I've got too much respect for the film, but mm. it does sort of play with a slight kind of horror movie. Can you trust these tribes people? Are they are they dangerous? You know, is it is it going to be a physical danger mm. to Jessup? And there is, you know... As part of the ceremony, they do grab his hand against his will and slice, the slice his, his hand open to, to to squeeze blood into the potion. Yeah, they do look a bit sinister. There's a few kind of like sinister smiles and laughs as yeah. well, isn't there? And and leers between one another. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's it kind of it's, it's just spice for a horror movie. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it definitely serves to unnerve. And fantastic bit of music mm. here. Um, and the sound effects as well. Mm. It's kind of really uh, stuff that makes your heart leap. Yeah. Music's by John Corigliano, who was um, was and is a very well-respected semi-avant-garde composer. Yeah, he doesn't have many credits, does he? No, I think he's gotten uh, not many movie commissions, and he's been shafted a couple of times. Apparently he was hired to do, recently hired to do a score for the um, Mel Gibson version of Edge of Darkness, but it got rejected. But yeah, the, the music in this, in the entire Mexico um, hallucination scene is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It kind of feels like diegetic music, like the music of 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 the Mexican tribes people and their sort of horns. But then you realise it's actually part of the score and it's leading into some really remarkably loud music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's difficult to know how to approach this whole section, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, he takes the potion, he hallucinates. He has the common hallucination. Yeah. But it does seem to his hallucination does seem to be influenced a lot more by his personal life as well. Yeah, that's it. That's it. He has a mad vision, which is sort of the parallels between mannered life. You have that sort of strange sequence where they're in, you know, he's wearing a boater and they're under a parasol, yeah. looking out at the landscape, and then their clothes switch from white to red, and it's all, you know, very impressionistic. And then there's just the stuff of lizards and you know uh, cell structures imploding and that kind of stuff mm. yeah i think my my interpretation of it is that this is his first experience with the drug 
and he gets a glimpse of because we see glimpses and flashes of hallucinatory stuff of what what you might call physics and biology mm. we get sort of very quick glimpses of that and so does he and he gets a he gets a taste of so what's, about potential what's to come. more than but you also get the scenes of his you know which are kind of metaphors for his relationship and how he feels that yeah, everyday yeah. life as you say is is crushing him and, and mm. strangling him um there's that scene where he has a vision of a lizard like a like a komodo dragon or something a mm. large lizard and it lifts its head and then it cuts to his wife naked Emily, yeah. in a sphinx-like position and then he lays down and looks at her as they turn to sand and then slowly dissolve dissolve in the, the wind, wind. Yeah. yeah and considering how quick the sequence is up to that point it just again stops and the audience just sit there and watch yeah. them the music stops yeah. and you just watch it almost in real yeah, time as they, yeah, as they it feels like erode. a couple of minutes suddenly and very hypnotic as they yeah just erode in the wind it's but, interesting I've, I've only only just realized that you could you could read that dissolution as as what's destined to happen to them later in the film breaking down to the breaking down into into yeah elements yeah but i think it's also about him acknowledging that he needs some time alone <laughs> essentially because <laughs> then when he comes out of his hallucination there's again quite a few uh narrative points that are quickly thrown at you first is that he's killed a lizard which i think the tribes people are pretty pissed off about that's yeah. why they have to leave in, in a hurry. hurry but they've also let him take some of the potion and he's going to synthesize it so he's seen the potential for it to help him on his quest and mm. he's basically nabbed it and will synthesize it and he's got what he needs so then they're back in the lab and we're straight into another vision another hallucination where they use clips from dante's inferno mm. which actually looks really harrowing doesn't it it looks like uh gustave dore or um Hieronymus Bosch it looks like that and it's been done you know physically by I wish I'd done a bit more research but some filmmaker in the 20s or 30s looks stunning so they've just incorporated that you know why why bother try to recreate it when somebody's done such a great job already mm. into his visions of hell you know he's he's going deeper yeah it's I used to find it a bit odd that we're still in his religious iconography and his kind of Christian iconography at mm. this stage when he's starting to experiment with the drugs and he should be pushing more. Yeah. But again... He's pushing through it, isn't he? Yeah, but again, it's it's still there and it's still lingering and it's something he has to push through in order to yeah, find yeah. what's really I waiting. Mean, there's, there's an argument that religious thinking is designed to be a barrier to progressive thought, that mm. we can't find our true place in the uh, the wider universe without, first of all, casting off these fables that shackle us mm. to very limited thought process so i think it's a hard push through for him to get past when we get back to the states mason really joins the story we've seen him on the peripheries but now he's kind of his we get to see his character he's the kind of you know you have your two committed scientists then you have the the contrary voice and he's really good at like shouting and shouting storming down. and you're just like i'm not listening to this shit any longer you know but, he does but, that all, all the way throughout I think Mason just wants a quiet life more than anything. He's pretty happy with the real world. Yeah, but he believes in their in their work. Oh, he absolutely believes in their work and, and their conviction. But he doesn't want to believe it once 
I think the first sequence we get Eddie talking about proto-humans and where he's tripping his nuts off in the isolation chamber for the first time talking about walking along I'm with them I'm hunting with the proto-humans and but it's quite it's quite interesting the way that 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 scene is filmed you kind of cut from the hallucinations hmm. um to a very very objective very exterior view you know you're sitting with Mason and Arthur in a very plain sterile room looking at Eddie through an observation window yeah and I think this that's that's a really important way to introduce Mason and his kind of scepticism because mm-hmm. at this stage you it's fair to be skeptical about it I think and what Mason is yeah. saying that's one of the, what's one of the things I like him about him is he is kind of common sense at the beginning you know you know Eddie is shooting up with an untested drug yeah, he's yeah. just tripping out in yeah, he's room. saying you should be testing on rats and you know why yeah. are you rushing into like yeah, and it's not even actual research. It's just you guys doing it on the side of your work. But as the film progresses, he's you know he's skeptical, but he's not ignorant. Yeah, yeah. And he, he you know he's not bullishly ignorant. When he's seen you know physical evidence of what Eddie is describing, he's taken evidence and had it examined. Um, and you know it is clear that what's happening is really yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He shouts, but he's not shouting it down, and he attends the experiments and he takes part. And he's not just, you know, you 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 kind of, you movies token skeptic with whom the skeptical side yeah, of the he's audience still a scientist, can isn't he? He he's, is a scientist. He stays with the learning ultimately. Yeah. And it's this, one of the strengths of the movie. You know, it's it sticks with its subject and it has faith in it. Mm. And and Mason comes to have faith in it too. Yeah, that's it. And the the wife as well. She is skeptical and she also comes to believe that mm. the research is valid you know uh, just a sidebar charles Hayde. have you seen him in anything else i know he's in hill street blues a lot i've seen him playing kind of like dangerous rednecks in a couple of things he plays uh the sort of redneck cop in nightbreed i've not seen that <laughs> oh there's a there's a new cut on its way so um you know 25 years later mm. but he's also a director so he's gone on to direct episodes of nypd blue uh, CSI, ER, Sons of Anarchy, and Breaking Bad. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Good on him. Yeah. He's got a really nice presence, hasn't he? Yes. Yeah. He looks like quite a dude. Yes. So, let's see. So, the, the first journey into the isolation chamber with the Mexican drug results in... We hear Eddie starting to trip out, and he's talking about proto-humans and hunting alongside them and lava and you know he's really tons of uh, just fragments and then he just starts grunting and groaning and definitely uh sounding more animalistic and when they pull him out of the chamber he's got blood around his mouth but mm. also he can't speak he's able to uh gesture for pen and paper and writing down that he wants x-ray do all the blood tests and x-ray my neck because he, he can't speak properly so they take an x-ray of his neck and there's a weird kind of sack inside of it mm. um and uh mason has this really nice sequence where he's like you know i'm professor of science i'm this that, and the other you know i, I do not accept this so he's like i'm gonna take this uh, x-ray upstairs and get somebody to to look at it properly and uh, he shows the x-ray to somebody else and he says you know what's wrong with this man and he's like it's <laughs> says, I'm looking for something somewhat unusual. Yeah, he's like, well, this is not a man. This is a fucking gorilla. <laughs> Just to backtrack slightly, for for a director who's who's renowned and vilified, you might say, for his kind of erratic, flamboyant movies, the whole first trip in the isolation tank, that whole scene you've mm. just described, is 
absolutely beautifully put together yeah, yeah. horror movie stuff. Yeah, everything is perfectly well, this, paced. Is this the first time we really settle into that black isolation chamber yeah. with the sort of inky darkness of the water? Yeah, underneath, underneath the hospital, yeah. The electrodes on his head, and yeah, the subterranean chamber with a chamber within a chamber, isn't yeah. it? It's really nicely done. And you have to, for some reason, it's all split level, so you have to keep going up and down stairs to get in and out of places. It's all, yeah, pretty exciting. Yeah, and ev everything about it, though, is, you know, the, the, the build up of tension and fear. Mm. And then, remarkably, after that, once Eddie's out, the sympathy that you have with him. Mm. He's he desperately, urgently wants to communicate to them. We've got to work quickly. We've got to do yeah, yeah, got to yeah. tests quickly. Do this quickly. And you're thinking, yes, do it quickly. I want to see the proof. Mm. And it actually delivers the proof at the end, which is yeah, so yeah. satisfying. So, yeah, definitely. As a viewer. Yeah, that's it. And he's. I mean, you think he's just had this terrible, terrifying experience, and yet there's still that glee. Yeah, in absolute excitement. The science yeah. is is valid. You mm. know, you recognise um, another sidebar. The X-ray technician, the uh, the old doctor that they take the X-ray to, do you recognise? No, him? no. It's Commander Lassard from the Police Academy movies. I, <laughs> I luckily I'm, I would I would like suggest film snobber in say that I've not seen them, but I've only seen one of those. You've only seen the first six. <laughs> <laughs> I saw like three because I wanted I was on a date and it was the only thing that was on at the okay, cinema. Okay. Um, yeah. Um. So the next sequence is. Eddie at home has picked up a young student. As a sidebar, this film is not terribly contemporary in its um, portrayal of of, of teacher-student relations. <laughs> yeah. They've all they've all like Mason has lots of dates with very yeah, yeah. young-looking women, and Eddie is quite happy to pick up his students. Yeah, it definitely says uh, academia is a world for sleazy intellectuals to get laid. Yeah. And this, so this stuff, I'm not sure if the intention is that it's real or if it's hallucinations or somewhere in between. I feel that it's real, but this is one of, this is the only scene in the film where I think it's slightly clumsy in its fudging of reality. Yeah, because we see his chest cavity collapsing and trying to reconfigure itself. Yeah, anymore. and his arms kind of swelling. And... Yeah, that's it. They call it the mole, don't they? Beneath the skin. Mm. I mean, beautiful effects, actually, really good good-looking stuff yeah great practical uh, effects and then he sort of jumps in the shower to cool himself off and his feet turn into ape feet almost yeah with the, his... the way that you, you can he's kind of it's looking... done in the cuts isn't it so it's not like in american werewolf where we get this long agonizing transformation it's sort of he looks looks his foot looks back and it's changed and then looks and it's back to normal yeah this this i mean i i always interpret the scene as being real mm. um but it does fudge it. Does it does open the door and see, you know, lava. It fudges it with doing that transformation in the cuts, whereas you could, it could just be, you know, something he's imagining. And then also, as you say, he, he opens the door to go back into the bedroom and you get this amazing sort of vertigo shot yeah. looking down into a, a, a fiery pit of hell, which is obviously a hallucination. But mm. um, I, I always take it as real. The, the next big sequence is makes me interpret what we've just seen as real. Oh, yeah, okay. So the next sequence is him experimenting again and then fully regressing into uh, you know, the proto-human ape-man. Mm. I really like that sequence. I feel it's slightly at odds with the cosmic nature of the rest of the film, mm. but I can, as sort of like a self-contained... Yeah, but it's nicely bizarre. It's a nice sort of bizarre tangent, a nice kind of mm. sidestep from you know intellectually interior and 
you know, literally interior sequences and scenes mm. to sort of break free of that and hit the streets is quite fun. There's a shot in it um, which I'll always remember from, from seeing the trailer. Back in the early 80s, you didn't used to have to show trailers appropriate to the film they were supporting. Oh, yeah, okay. So you could go and see Raiders of the Lost Ark or something and you'd see a trailer for Outland oh, or yeah. something. Or you could go and see Flash Gordon and you'd mm. have an Altered States trailer attached yeah, yeah. to it, which wouldn't be you know gruesome, but it would be quite scary. Yeah, yeah. But there's the image of um, Primate Eddie running running down the road with the dogs following him. Mm. Just with the sort of bathed in that sort of cold moonlight yeah, yeah. with the rain. I just remember that image really clearly from seeing the trailer. It's a nice performance as well. I can't remember the name of the guy that is playing the primordial man. Miguel something? He's a yeah, dancer, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's right. He's a, a Mexican dancer and he has a really nice physicality, doesn't he? Mm. You know, he gets the kind of animalistic parts, but there's also just like absolute physical confidence as he mm. leaps from ladders to tops of cars and... There's a really cool scene with him and the elephants. I think it's supposed to be Boston Zoo, is that right? Cause yeah, they're in Massachusetts, I think, Cambridge, yeah, Massachusetts. Yeah. So. Um, but they shot it in the Bronx Zoo. I think it's one of the only films that's ever shot in the Bronx Zoo. And basically the elephants were quite sedate, so they got the elephants really riled up and then got him to run through the middle of them. And after that, he just threw a tantrum. and was like, no more, that's the last take. Yeah, so he's you can see him like pushing them and mm. them almost trampling him, and he's kind of just in there amongst them trying to feed at the watering hole mm. it's a really nice sequence and again um this is this is like a really nicely shot really nicely planned and executed sequence which coming from a director who's kind of again vilified for being over the top and silly and it's it's just it's yeah it's fantastic it's, i mean but he is a great director ken russell mm. i mean i haven't seen that much of his work when you look at how many films he actually knocked out he was pretty busy but you know, The Devils, I think, is you know really meticulous in its execution. Tommy disturbed me as a kid, and I still have trouble watching it now. No. I wanted to see Tommy a lot. I mean, when it came out, I was about four or five or mm -hmm. something. But I remember there was loads of clips of it on TV. Yeah, yeah. And I remember I wanted to see it really badly, just because I was like jazzed by that clip. Mm -hmm. I think it's like a superimposed bit of Roger Daltrey running on lava or something. Oh, yeah, okay. And I wanted to see it so badly. And then I was really annoyed because there was a Jim will fix it where somebody else, like some other kid wanted to see it. Oh, yeah. And they'd like cut together a safe version for him or her oh, to right, see. Okay. Uh, it could have been you with Jimmy Savile. <laughs> I dodged a bullet there. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. That kid's probably still traumatized, poor bastard. <laughs> What other Ken Russell movies have you seen? I, you know, I haven't seen Valentino. I haven't seen... No, pitifully few. Mm. Um, I've seen Crimes of Passion. Oh, yeah, okay. That's that's really strong. Mm. I mean, like, really, really well made. I remember being a teenager and seeing a poster for a film called Whore. Yeah, with... <laughs> and uh, I just felt like, I'm not watching that. That looks bloody scary. Who is it in that? It's uh, Teresa Russell. Russell. It's about 1990. There's posters mm. all over for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've seen, like, really woefully little. I've picked up a few in the last year or so mm -hmm. that I've keep meaning to watch Women in Love and oh, yeah. there's a couple of the compilations of his earlier work are up there that I've still oh, not okay. got around to watching but no very little I've got to set aside the time it's just you know how it is yeah I guess there's that anticipation that it's going to be hard work it's not just that it's just there's so much to watch mm. so much to catch up on and I, I got to be fair I was you know I've even even liking Altered States I think I liked it more until recent years just because it was a great like science fiction stroke horror movie sure. I was taken in by Ken Russell's uh, reputation as like an overblown director of nonsense um, and it's only in recent years that I've 
come to realise that was stupid. Yeah, it's really unfair. Yeah, it's it, really actually. unfair, and I've got to try harder. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he should be up on a pedestal with our other British great. I'm saying that having only seen ten percent of his oeuvre, mm. maybe when I've completed the uh, request. So by this point, um, Emily's been reintroduced to the film after a brief absence. She's been off doing a research in Africa. Yeah, she's studying the, apes, isn't she? Yeah, primates. Primates. She picks him up from the police station um, after he's been found um, in the zoo, having transformed back into himself. He's been found in the zoo. And again, this is one of the key moments where the film could kind of lose its nerve. Emily is not quite convinced at this stage that Jessup is doing anything other than going mad. Yeah, taking um, drugs. Yeah, taking drugs and going mad. <laughs> they have a brief discussion back at the apartment, and then Mason turns up with his uh, with his clothes, which he'd left back at the lab, um, and mentions that there'd been um, a wild ape running around, which is perhaps the first time that, that Emily's convinced that what's going on is genuinely yeah, going yeah. on. And it's... Mason's like, just tell me they didn't bring an animal down there. Tell me they haven't been experimenting on apes. And yeah, I, again, it's, you know, I really, really appreciate that the film doesn't mess about. It doesn't introduce mm. doubts unnecessarily just for the sake of appearing to be rational. It's not a rational film. It's not a rational premise. Mm. It's, you know, and you've got to go with it. And the film does. You get a you get a brief interlude at this point um, where things have to settle down a little bit before what's before what's coming. And then um, Emily listens to the recordings that were made of um, the earlier experiment. Yeah, where he's grunting like an ape. Yeah, where he regresses. And they sound very familiar to her, and she's very frightened because she begins to believe that he really is regressing. Um, and it's quite an important like chessboard character manoeuvre to have her on board with this now, because this means that when we go into the next big sequence, which is the main experiment, yeah. um, that everybody is on board. They're all present as well, aren't they? So they're all present, and they're convinced that the research they're doing is genuine and it is leading to yeah. something. But she's there in two capacities she's there as a scientist and also as somebody that loves and cares about him mm. as well she's concerned as well as intrigued so and it's interesting she takes on the voice of reason and it's not you know kind of like a hysterical wife it is the voice of reason this is very dangerous research we should not be doing this mm-hmm. because even at this you know even, even mason's on board at this stage he's being quite yeah, quiet he's, and he's convinced, he? present convinced taking part um and i guess this leads us into the the big section of the film, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a really a... spectacular visual sequence, isn't it? This experiment where somehow a combination of the isolation chamber, the drugs and the belief, you know, the more people that are there, the more belief that's in the room, somehow it just enables, I think in the script it's written as uh, uh, Eddie disassociating into cosmic energy and imploding into a black hole and all credit to them they managed to pull that off visually Mm. it's very very spectacular sequence before we start to talk about it in depth i do think it's very very clever bit of writing i always admire this about a film that sets up a concept and then delivers something which feels like the end result of that concept and then is able to take it further um I, i wonder how many audience members watching watching this without too much knowledge of what they were going into would feel that the ape man is kind of like the end result of the experiment oh i see yeah yeah there's just that that sleight of hand sort of presenting you with the ape man thing thinking yeah yeah you could regress back you know this yeah, is going to yeah. make him regress back to an ape man and then and then taking it a step further and saying yeah, yeah, it's really brave if, if you go further with that you could go right back to the beginning of time yeah, yeah. And, and the beginning of the universe and that's what we're going to show you yeah, yeah let's see how far we can go yeah yeah and they pull it off you know you have this 
great sequence of you know shit just starts exploding you know it's too much energy contained in one space and you see the pipes across the ceiling really like bending and bowing from the force of it mm. we see the chamber just atomized yeah and we see the uh, two male scientists like blown off their feet and Again, knocked that's, unconscious it's an it's, it's something that feels very validating when you're watching something um as like a, a science fiction viewer and i find it incredibly satisfying um just there's those those images of of mason and arthur mm. just because they get to finally see objectively on a tv screen yeah that's what right. we've been seeing privately yeah, yeah and what we've been you know you see him warp don't you see his you head see him distort warp. and his dna breaking down in real time it's... yeah and then um you know arthur's ab- ab- absolutely blown away just staring into the to the primordial light that's coming yeah, yeah, through yeah. the tv screen it's just incredibly satisfying as, as, a, as a horror movie viewer to have those kind of definitive this is happening yeah, moments. Yeah, yeah. There's no vagaries there at yeah. all, is there? It, it, it's it's definitely happening. The scientists are seeing mm. it. Yeah, there's one slightly clunky moment where Emily rushes in to save him and Mason scoops her up and out of danger mm. and then sort of bumps her into a wall and she's unconscious for a few seconds as he goes running back I in. really like that moment and I really I really really like the way that the the sound effects build up and then cut out and you realize that something really strange and terrible has just happened in the room Mm-mm. as we're out of the room and so you're all the more frightened when Emily has to go in <laughs> yeah, to okay. investigate all right all right I'll let it pass thanks yeah, yeah. <laughs> I retract my previous statement but then when she comes back into the room and it's that swirling vortex I mean yeah. that's that's a staggering image mm. you know, like perfectly executed I mean we haven't really talked about Jordan Cronenworth the cinematographer no. it's probably a good time just to pause and pat him on the back for yeah. you know a job well done you know it it's, looks brilliant you can see why he was scooped up for Blade Runner yeah he's he's a legend and such a, such a beautifully shot film this actually because you obviously you know I know him from from this and from Blade Runner and also from Cutter's Way, yeah, which I think came between the two. For me, it's State of Grace. You know, I, I yes. love that movie, State of Grace, and he, <laughs> he did such a great job on that as well. But it's it's weird when you look at people's IMDb and you see their really groundbreaking work, which mm. for Jordan is this mm-hmm. and Blade Runner, and then you are slightly disappointed when you see the later credits, which are you 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 want to see more flamboyant work later yeah, on, yeah, but sure. you see you know Gardens of Stone and a Peggy Sue got married and mm-hmm. stuff. I, I went and looked the other way on his filmography and there's so many like little interesting movies that I've it's going to be almost impossible to find but I really really want to see yeah yeah talking of the vortex I read in Cinefix they were talking about how that whole sequence once the tank is disintegrated and they, you're just left with this vortex swirling in the middle of the room it's all lit from underneath mm. so it's a two and a half inches of perspex and then all the light is underneath but once they activated the motors to start swirling the water it thickened the object that the light had to pass through because it's the water is thicker because it's a swirling vortex yeah so they had to increase the light by 200 percent to get it to shine through it's um we keep referring to this cinefix article um it's i I will try not to go on about how cinefix was better in the old days than it is now (laughs) but um if anyone likes this movie and hasn't already, you need to buy issue four of Cinefix, which has got Outland. Uh, it's got a model shot from Outland on the cover because back in those days, Cinefix used to do really, really, really in-depth coverage of movies. Yeah. The whole production. 
it's a book in its own right isn't it, it? that article it, it's really really dense yeah it's really good it's at least 40 pages beautifully illustrated it has a slightly condescending tone towards ken russell and i, I think, think the guy writing the article is a dick smith fan isn't he so yeah. it's it is mostly about dick smith and his work which is fantastic yeah but it ends on dick smith just saying that he was dissatisfied that they'd had to adapt his work to make it more spectacular yeah. I, th- I mean there was a slight whiff of sour grapes about the article by you get by the time you get to the end because mm. obviously dick smith did a lot of work and he had planned out the transformations in a very linear way it would be this stage at this point of the film, this and, that. and Ken Russell just kind of went in and took what he liked and used it how he thought best. It, didn't he? You know, Shuffled it. Stage two of the transformation, he just threw into one yeah. sequence, and then other bits he just used where he liked, basically. And you get to the end of the article, and you're kind of like, oh, I can understand your point, but the end result, without knowing your dissatisfaction, the end result still works beautifully. Yeah, yeah. So that's all that matters, really, at the yeah. end. I guess, in, in terms of the narrative, this is where Emily rescues him rescues from from the abyss from the abyss basically pulls him back helps to reconstitute him to his physical form physical form and pulls him back into the world yeah i mean the film doesn't really put any brakes on that it just rouses from this experience they get home and then they start to break down again from there's, yeah, there's nothing really you in have, between, is there? You have a sort of a, a, a come down moment where they're all at home and absolutely shell shocked, except for Arthur, who is really buzzing, isn't is he? really really buzzing, um, and is is more excited than Jessup about the about yeah, the yeah. implications well, of the experiment. He's not the one that's been through the experience, <laughs> is he? It's, it's um, Mason is exhausted and just mm. wants to forget about the whole thing because it's too dangerous and the you know yeah. just, he he's it's totally convinced yeah, but it's, he's it's too much it's too much for humanity for anyone mm-hmm. to handle can we just stop talking about it yeah. please um, we shouldn't be able to do this basically Jessup is broken yeah Jessup is is exhausted emily's about to go into shock and she um explains to mason how she feels about about jessup and and how she's obsessed by him and can't live without him and then eventually mason and arthur leave Mm. and we're left with you know what feels like the the quiet ending of the movie and then you have kind of like a, a, a third act extra shocker yeah i think what they're going for it feels like what they're going for is this sort of concept that as Jessup is moving in and out of this fuge state now. He's unlocked something that his mind and his DNA are able to sort of collapse backwards and forwards through will, yeah. the you know the genetic inherited history. That maybe the only thing that can keep him anchored to reality is love. You know, it's not too heavy-handed. I a lot of people, a lot of the reviews I've read were very dismissive of of this kind of you know. Because the film eventually says the ultimate truth of life is that there is no ultimate truth. I can imagine, you know, if you're expecting to be presented with some ultimate truth, it's a lot to ask of a horror movie. But if you're expecting that somehow, yeah, sure. you'd be disappointed. But looking at it, you know, with Chevsky's condition, he's nearing the end. And I can I can see. But I mean, that's it does sort of just rely on that. You know, this idea that in the midst of all that chaos, you know, love is the anchor that keeps us present. But having having admitted his love for her i guess jessup then starts to lose his cohesion again loses physical cohesion yeah, yeah. he unravels again doesn't he you mm-hmm. know we see you know in quite a breathtaking series of images we see him breaking down into warped distorted forms as his 
DNA collapses in on itself and mm. it's almost like it's yeah, regressing it's... beyond his control and now you know yeah. I think the idea of the experiments was that he was always able to guide you know any he was signposted back as far as possible but now he's he's out of control his his DNA is wild and <laughs> regressing and he's mutating and his yeah. wife comes flying in to help him and at the moment the moment she touches him she yeah. becomes infected by the dissolution and, and starts to yeah you know the visual effects on her are really special it's you mm. know this skin tight lava suit with really intense uh front projections to make it ripple and live you know yeah. it's, it's really quite incredible to to see yeah and quite horrific as well because mm. it's it's well, her arms are shriveling. There's all those little details where you're just like, that's fucking horrible. Yeah, that's really, it it's, it's yeah. really horrible what's it happening really to her. It's really painful. And there's one shot where they just cut to her with this sort of withering form. And she's obviously in agony, but all you hear is this sort of heat haze. Mm. There's a heat haze shimmering across her and then this sort of noise. And you can't even hear her screams for help. It's, mm. it's really, really upsetting. Obviously, but when his dissolution starts, you kind of get some some kind of flash image, imagery and he starts fighting it in scene I've seen parodied a couple of times once in South Park oh yeah okay um, he Where starts thumping the wall yeah he's literally thumping his fist from one wall to another to another yeah. trying to I mean it's, it's, it's hard I mean how else would you do it you mm. know you know, it's just remind phys- yourself of your physicality it's the physical form isn't it and, mm. and trying to allow the conscious mind to <laughs> reconstitute your yeah. DNA you know yeah it's a it's a tricky one i can't see how else they would have done it but it sometimes looks a bit like uh, oh, i want to break free doesn't it sort of... <laughs> i think it's, it's absolutely captivating there's some um, and there's some stunning like like two three one two three frame edits in there yeah, yeah, yeah. where you're cutting between different forms within the action yeah. as he's pounding the wall and the interview again the interview in scene effects but um bran ferron the guy um, who did a lot of the optical effects, did yeah. all the optical effects for this and was brought in particularly to punch up this sequence. It's sort of heralded as the first CGI stuff, isn't it? Because mm. they used computer rotoscoping, which had never been done. Yeah, he says that they, they were using a lot of different imagery. And he says if you look carefully at the sequence of, you know, where he's punching the walls, there's a lot of shots that, if you go through it frame by frame, that don't really work, where he's not in the right position. Yeah. But it's seamless. It yeah, just, yeah, yeah. you know watching it it just feels absolutely real well considering they're under like quarter a ton of rubber both (laughs) of the performances are still very much like in the space aren't they yeah utterly convincing you know you feel the confusion and the terror and Mm -hmm. the agony is all happening as well as all the vfx and the music and you know it's uh yeah it's a very powerful scene um and uh jessup eventually does um manage to bring himself violently back to human form mm. and then wanders over and, and redeems Emily as well, brings her back to physicality. They sort mm. of wink out of existence for a moment and then return yeah, yeah, as themselves. Big spark of nothing and then mm. they declare their love for them. He declares his love for the first time, tells her he loves her for the first time. And then um, the credits start. Like the it, credits start. It just ends so abruptly. I always wonder though, and I've been thinking about it more since I last viewed it, and you don't really consider these things when you're watching it younger, but as an adult... I, uh, do you think do you think Eddie survives I have a feeling that I don't know, having having viewed him being so detached from humanity mm. for his entire life and then having achieved his goal to learn what the truth of life is and learn that it's nothing and the only thing redeeming him is this somewhat tenuous relationship with his wife and family because he's not the most loving of husbands yeah, yeah. I, I do think 
I personally feel that that later on, after the credits have rolled at some point in his life, he's just going to wink into nothing. Mm. I, th- I don't think that would hold him to reality. Well, also seeing how affected his DNA is by the experiments, do we just accept that he would be genetically stable after this, that he's not going to exactly. com- complete... If so much of this is dependent on lecturing and just turn into a primordial blob and then snap back. <laughs> Sorry about that. Now, where where was I? <laughs> I, I? I do feel that that if so much of his actual real physical existence depends on his state of mind now, that mm-hmm. at some point he's gonna, he might go into a slump and just disappear one night. Yeah, I think you know when you sort of imagine what happens after the credits roll, you know this idea that what does he do? Does he share his research with everyone? Does do isolation tanks? And... I mean, it's. It's a terrifying thing to unleash on the world, isn't it? Yeah, you wouldn't that's want... it. Yeah. I, I mean, the film does it happen of... then on every campus around the world? Is there an army of uh, yeah. you know DNA explorers? It's it's one of those things. It's you know it's like the end of Primer, I guess, isn't it? Mm. Where you know mm-hmm. they are off building government-sponsored yeah. big bigger time machines somewhere. Yeah, yeah. But with this, it's just too. I think it's just too dangerous a concept. Mm. I mean, the film kind of suggests that it's Eddie is sort of a messianic figure who, because of his background might be the only person who could crack this Mm-mm. and at this it would only happen to him but if not then surely it's not something you could share with the world it's not something for fear of what might happen yeah or maybe it's something you should share with the world and mm. unleash you know put an end to organized religion and unleash the academics mm. a bunch of random notes left over um i wrote down a word that they use in cinefx to describe eddie's job they called him a psychophysiologist, okay. which I just liked seeing on the page, lots of P's and Y's. <laughs> and then I also wrote down the word zoomorphic, because that's how they describe Ken Russell's work, which I took to mean he uses lots of zooms, zoom lenses, morphic, you know, anamorphic, zoomorphic. Um, but then when I, when I looked it up, it actually meant lots of animal-based imagery. So um, prefer your definition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just really... Um, the soundtrack, which I think was it, Waxwork released a version of last year, yes, or the year before. Thank you for that. <laughs> and also the the poster image, which I think we both have a copy of. Yes, again, thank you which for that. Is it's the, uh, hanging downstairs in the lounge as we speak. Uh, yeah, yeah. The foil version of that poster is it's quite a great. It's beautiful. Yeah. Poster, yeah, definitely. It's of, a very. Its time. It's like a very very iconic poster. Um, and another reason that I'm really pissed off with Warner Brothers for the way they treated it on Blu-ray mm. is that they've lost that imagery. Like it's kept, it's kept that poster on the cover all the way through, right up until DVD. Oh, okay, what did they go with? As just a picture of William Hurt, like a profile of William Hurt, photoshopped with um, the logo in in not in the not in the original, correct just, font. Yeah, just a box oh standard bullshit oh, cover. Dear. Yeah, it's an amazing poster. The soundtrack is I've I've got it on CD, and you've got me the beautiful vinyl edition which was um composer approved with liner notes yeah, by yeah, the yeah. it's not something i listen to for pleasure <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> i like i like the opening theme it's more for a collector to be a bit more complete isn't it you know? mm. I, I bought it on cd so, oh yeah i really love that soundtrack in that mm-hmm. movie but it's not one i do listen to a lot of soundtracks for pleasure outside yeah, sure. of the movie and sometimes mm. soundtracks for movies that i haven't seen mm. this one is works absolute gangbusters in the movie it's mm-hmm. in it's a third of the film i'd say yeah but i can't listen to it outside of that. <laughs> yeah, sure sure i like altered states <laughs> me too um it still has i've i've discovered people in unexpected situations who 
like the movie. I yeah. think it's still obviously because it has hallucinatory drug referency type things. It does have a big stoner following. Yeah, it's never going to go out of fashion, is yeah. it? As long as kids keep taking drugs. And I remember a place I was, for altered states. I was working on an extremely mundane commercial, um, and the director had a friend of hers in, and they were talking about this script that they were developing um, to do with drugs and something. And then one of them said, oh, yeah, and then we'll go into the bit about the cosmic vortex. And I just turned around and said, that sounds very Altered States. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Oh, we love Altered States. It's one of my favourite movies. As as a, as a sci-fi movie and a horror movie, it's kind of receded over the years. I, I don't think it's got the same following it used to have. Well, I but... think... But it is, it is a challenging film. The, the dialogue... You have to pay attention to the dialogue to really buy into the concept. You have mm. to listen to the characters. You have to follow their threads of thought. Mm and some of the abstract concepts they're trying to manifest. So I, I can imagine if you have a low attention span, it's you're just going to find it frustrating because you won't really have understood what's going on. It's crazy, though, because it moves so quickly and everything's know, so eloquent and succinct. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's great, but yeah. I could I could see why yeah. why a modern audience... <laughs> no, I, maybe that's unfair, but you know, it, it doesn't sit as comfortably in the modern landscape of cinema. Yeah. Do you know what? Something that occurred to me, which I made a note of and then forgot about, um, is what an influence uh, this movie must have had on Gaspar Noé. Oh, yeah, okay. If you compare this to um, Irreversible mm. and uh, Enter the Void, particularly, mm. uh, there's there's that feeling of the cosmic in those two movies yeah, of his, yeah. particularly at the end of Irreversible, with the you know the, where the camera eventually whirls off into. Mm well, whirls off into space and time and then says time destroys all things at the end. Mm. And that's, if that's not from altered states, I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but I think, you know, any people that are taking lots of drugs are probably thinking about the, the cosmic enormity <laughs> of of life. And... and with that in mind, I'd imagine it, it, you know, it might find a new audience. I just think it's slid off the charts a bit. Yeah, it's frustrating that, isn't it? Because it's, it's really good. It's a, a really quality film. Yeah, but it's really vivid and punchy and and it's fast paced. It's r- really smart script, great effects, great performances. Like you know, maybe a little abrupt at the, at the climax, but mm. who isn't? Mm.